Hey, everybody. Today, I'm joined by an incredible guest. Her name is Jen Elizabeth, author of Shape of a Woman, a book that you can find on Amazon, where she tells the story of her journey from uh, her journey through alcohol and drug addiction. She's the mother of two, and she uses social media to promote her own story of recovery and helping others to recover. And today, she's I'm very happy that she's willing to come on the podcast and share her story. How's it going, Jen? I'm great. How are you? Not too bad. This is my first uh, important thing to do today. I've just been lazing around. <laughs> Mine too, really. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, what time is it? In uh, Are you in California I'm now? In California. It is 11. So yeah, I've been in my jammies all day. And I actually, that is my intention for the entire day. <laughs> I am. Nice. Yeah, it's like, you know, if we're going to have to be stuck at home, we got to find some perks. There's one jammy days <laughs> for sure um i'm curious so i was just i'm i'm so happy to find out about um your uh your daughter just had a birthday mm -hmm. and uh you're spending a lot of time at home with the kids which can be both negative and positive <laughs> um i'm curious for you as a mother what's it like sort of being around your kids so much right now and thinking back to your own childhood and your own experiences uh, your early experiences growing up. What's that like for you? Oh, well, that's always um, extremely moving because, you know, I grew up, I'm basically, you know, a motherless mother. So I don't really have, and I never had kind of that role model to look up to. Um, and so I've been kind of like forging my own path here. Um, and the main thing for me is that the house that I live in now looks nothing like any ho any home I ever lived in. That's the most that's mm -hmm. the most important thing for me. Um, and you know that communication is so important. You know that you know I grew up in so much silence and secrets and abuse and ah uh, I just I've been consumed in silence my entire life. And so with my children now, you know, I'm just, we talk about everything. And obviously, you know, my daughter just turned three, my son's seven, so it's age appropriate, but everything is super open and, and I want them mm -hmm. to feel comfortable to talk about their feelings. They're allowed to be angry. They're allowed to be sad. You know, I'm not, I don't call them bad. I don't say they're being bad. You know, there's just so many things I'm much more mindful of and you know I'm just really aware and there's going to be so much out in the world that, that they're going to face on their own that I want them to have a home front that they know that they're safe safety is so important <laughs> yeah that's really the best thing that you can offer just having that home front and they're so it sounds like they're really lucky to have you Jen that's uh, awesome yeah I'm super blessed to have them I I came very close to not having children absolutely was sure that I would be a mother like my mother. Um, I was sure that I was a failure at everything. I was scared to death that I was going to be a child molester, um, which is super common for survivors um, to have that fear. Um, but if, I, of course, didn't voice it. I held it inside, so I thought that something was wrong with me. Um, which there was mm -hmm. not. And so that's one of the reasons I speak about the things that are really uncomfortable to speak about, because there's going to be that one person that, you know, probably more, but if even if it's just one person that is in that shame and feels like they are just too damaged to live life like everybody else, I want them to know that they are not damaged, that they are perfect and that these are common fears and common emotions and <clears throat> they are absolutely, we can heal from all that. So where does this story start for you? Um, you mentioned the molestation and um, growing up basically motherless. Where, where does the story begin? What are some of your earliest memories there? Uh, you know, the story begins, you know, from my very first memories, very first, probably around three years old. Um, you know, my mom, just she has Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy, which is very complicated and misunderstood. And um, it's something she wasn't diagnosed with till we were I was in my 20s. So basically, this abuse went on unknown and unnoticed. 
Um, and uh, what is that? What is that uh, that she was diagnosed Munchausen with? Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy. So it is a disorder, mental disorder. Um, it's if you've ever seen, um, I think it, there's a few documentaries done on it. Uh, like mommy deadest mommy dearest or something there's another one called sharp objects basically it's where they inflict physical emotional um you know um, all kinds of wounds on themselves and by proxy is where they um, inflict injuries onto their children so they make Mm -hmm. up sicknesses and illnesses and surgeries and infections and um it's all for that attention that they receive that is their entire identity. So what were some of the diagnoses that uh, you were given or that, that she oh, put on to you? I mean, I can't even count. <laughs> it, it was bad. What? I mean, the thing with my mom is she does it very, she does it to herself. So my mo- my mother is, mm-hmm. has been, in more hospitals and surgeries and and it's very common also that they are nurses which she is or was um and it's also common that as the years go on they actually do become physically sick themselves for real and she is bedridden Mm -hmm. um so but when i was growing up um my when i was around two and a half my brother was born and my brother became more of her victim than I am. My brother is actually 40 years old and he still lives with them and he sleeps in her bed. So he wow. is a victim of and... his, I mean, much more severe than I was. I, she kind of tossed me aside a little bit when my brother was born. And was your father in the my picture at the time? My father was in the picture and they are still married. And it's just so much dysfunction, really what it comes down to. And I've had to do a lot of healing work and a lot of, you know, um, soul searching and stuff. They just really have never had the tools to survive themselves. It's just generations of trauma and abuse and dysfunction that just has trickled down. And and nobody, nobody has had the courage to stand up and say, okay, enough is enough, no matter what, no matter what my dad has been faced with. I mean, my mom, when, when I was in my 20s, when it really came to a head was she had a neurologist. She would have these seizures. And I mean, they look just it's mind blowing the power of the mind and how powerful my mom's mental state actually is. I mean, she can actually make herself sick in a way for it's just um, it's incredible. But um, she was having these seizures. I mean, I. I would watch her and I mean, full on seizures. And one neurologist finally said, called my dad in the office away from my mom and said, listen, none of this makes sense because she's having seizures that affect the right side of her body. And the only thing we see is this little spot that you guys have been saying is the problem, but it's on the right side of the body. So that doesn't make it's, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. It should be affecting the left side and our whole world blew open. I mean, it's like all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, everything that we had been through just like came crashing down and my dad couldn't face it. He just couldn't. And I, I think about if I were him, how I just, I don't know if I could either like to just hear that all of this hospital and trauma and, and sickness and uh, that it was all not real. (laughs) Yeah. It would take admitting that your wife is lying or insane basically so yeah yeah. and it's it's just so much he's an enabler from hell i mean it's and he's just so codependent and so it's just very sad the whole situation is very sad yeah Mm -hmm. and how long were you living at home when did you start to sort of move on to other uh parts of Um, your life well i ran away when i was about 15 i was an alcoholic by 12 and um started using drugs and when I was 15 I ran away I mean there was just so much going on my mom was always trying to kill herself and um tell me it was my fault and I believed her you know of course I grew up like that I believed her it was my fault and that I just couldn't be good enough and I couldn't be smart enough and I couldn't be skinny enough 
and, and all the things that she told me. And, um, I ran away and then, you know, I was arrested and, um, I eventually moved out into my apartment. I think I was 20, which didn't last long because I was in a full blown addiction, (laughs) but yeah. So what about that five year period? So you were arrested. Were you, uh, were you held in juvie for a period? What happened in in those years for a little bit? And then, you know, my parents came to pick me up and I, I remember, um, being so, I just did not want to go back to that house. That house was just torture that they Mm -hmm. had to click the child locks in the back on the back doors because I was trying to jump out on the freeway. I just did not, you know, and, and all everybody saw because a, I never said anything. This is, I am a groom secret keeper and B no one ever, you know, no one ever checked on us, my brother and I, no one ever, you know, we would be with the police officers, you know, walking the neighborhoods looking for my mom who had disappeared again. And no one ever um, questioned like our safety or there was no social, cert- you know, and this was happened. This happened a lot, mm-hmm. but there was so much chaos in my house. Um, and I was, you know, depressed and withdrawing and, and, you know, had an eating disorder and like so much going on and no one ever is so it just blows my mind. I don't even know if it's just the time it was like, you know, in the eighties or what, but no one questioned anything about my home life. Um, they just sent me home with my parents. And so I just was, Oh God, I didn't want to go back there, but I had no choice. You know, I was a teenager and I, <laughs> it's horrific that, that system that's there to help you actually ends up bringing you back into that household and into that it, situation. It that's is. horrific. It really um, is. And so like, even like right now with this like pandemic going on and stuff, I've been reading so much about, you know, how teachers are like the most important mandatory reporters of child abuse. And so now all these children are ending up in hospitals dead from from child abuse or super injured and and now they're having more calls from actual children calling into sexual abuse lines than ever before these children are just left to their own devices and they're just suffering because you know the teachers aren't there or whatever and it's like as an adult we should all be mandatory reporters any adult any adult should be a mandatory reporter and and we have this thing where we don't what's their business is their business. Well, when it comes to children, it should all be our business because I am a product of child abuse. I know how it feels when everyone's there and you can't say anything and you're just hoping somebody notices that something's really wrong here. Yeah. So when did, (laughs) when did alcohol become a a solution um, to this? So, Probably, you know, when I was 12, I started having, I started thinking about suicide when I was around 10. I started, um, you know, I was, when I was 10, we, well, okay, back step a little bit. When I was five, my parents joined a religious cult. So, you know, they were looking for answers outside of themselves. I get it, you know? Mm-hmm. So they joined this religious movement. They moved us all away from our other family and friends across the country to Mobile, Alabama. We were segregated and separated from anyone who may have loved us or known us, you know, and just supposed to spend our entire lives and time with these people in this congregation. And that's it. And, you know, as time went on, the abuse began, of course, financial, spiritual, religious, physical, and then sexual abuse. Yeah. From other members of this cult? So the elder. Wow. um, One of the things with this cult was that everyone had to tithe. I don't know if you know what tithing is, but okay. You had to tithe 10% of your income every week. And my we were poor we were really poor and my dad cannot afford that and i believe Mm -hmm. and other things point to that i was the gift given in exchange so the elder called me in his office one day and you know mind you i was starving for love 
and desperate for attention. I didn't get any of that at home. There was just so much chaos at my house that, you know, nobody had any time for anything, you know. Um, and he had me sit on, on his lap and, you know, he began like coloring with me in coloring books and singing me songs and memorizing Bible verses. And he did all these things that I really wanted. You know, I just wanted someone to tell me I was good. I just wanted someone to say that mm -hmm. I was smart and that, you know, God loved me, you know, and, and that I wasn't a bad girl and all this stuff. And he did that. And um, so over time, though, you know, that those experiences grew into something just so frightening and confusing that I would disassociate and fly off, you know, in my imagination and leave my body to him to do whatever he wanted. And I just never said anything. And he never told me not to tell anybody. I just knew. I just knew that I would not be protected. Mm -hmm. And I actually didn't consciously know that I wouldn't be, or, you know, that's why I wasn't saying anything. But in years later in therapy, because I believe that was my fault. So I was in my 30s. I took complete ownership of all that because I didn't say anything. And that's very common for a survivor as well, is that that silence somehow twists things around and makes us go from being a victim to a participant because we kept the secret and those secrets, they somehow transform into feeling like they, like there are secrets, but those were never my secrets. Those were their secrets. Mm -hmm. Those were never my secrets, but it's, it took me into my third, I mean, into my thirties, I believe that that was my fault and that was the part I played. And so I was a disgusting person. So since you kept, since you mm -hmm. couldn't tell anybody about this and um, couldn't escape this situation, how did you start to cope with um, this aside from you know, dissociating? Self-harm, eating disorders. I craved control and I sought control any way I possibly could. I had no control over anything, really. Um, and then when we, my parents fled the cult at, when I was 10 and then we came back to this town I live in now. And um, when we moved back, you know, in my mind, I thought, well, thank God that's over, you know, because it was just getting worse and worse. And the sexual abuse was getting, you know, more and more painful. Things were just progressing. And I just don't even want to think about what may have transpired for me if I had stayed, you know. Um, but my mom's mm -hmm. mental health took a really big turn for the worse because she loved that. I don't want to call it church. That It was a disbanded as a documented cult. It was a cult. So she loved that cult. They call it a church, but she loved that cult. She still loves that cult. Um, and she did not want to leave. But my dad was being severely, you know, financially and emotionally abused by these people. And he had finally just, you know, there was a man coming around offering to secretly rescue people. And my dad just that gave him, I guess, the push to say, okay, maybe there is something really bad happening here. So when when we came back to California, you know, my mom just started doing these suicide attempts. And I, you know, to be very clear, I do not think that people who try to commit suicide are seeking attention. But with Munchausen, all of these episodes are for that reason. It's still not her, it's still not her fault. Mm. It's not, it's her, it's her sickness. But these attempts were very, mm -hmm staged and she did it a lot when I was the only one home and I'd have to run after her crying and beg her not to leave and just she would just look straight through me and mock me and just it was so awful <laughs> um and mm -hmm. the pain I just thought I just can't live anymore I just I shouldn't live anymore I'm disgusting the shame was just a beast inside of me and so I really did start contemplating suicide. And then I, vodka, honestly, alcohol and drugs saved my life. For sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. of course, as you hear my story later, they, of course, flipped on me and almost took my life many, many times. But at that point, they, I, they did save me because it was a relief. It relieved me from that, from myself. <laughs> so, yeah. So this was your parents' stash that you found in the house, or how did you come across this? Friend's house. We spent. I spent the night at her house, and we were in their guest house. And there was a bottle of vodka in there, 
And I had no clue. It's like, that's what's so scary about um, trauma and addiction, right? Um, the, the road, the, it's like a double road between trauma and addiction. And it just loops back into itself. Like, when you have trauma, most of the time, you don't even know you have trauma at that point, or what trauma is. But when you have unresolved trauma, it makes you way more susceptible to falling into substance use disorder. And then when you in substance, when you're in an addiction, you're so much more likely to have re-traumatization by being around dangerous people, high risk situations, all that stuff. And mm-hmm. then <laughs> it's a known fact that people who are in addictions or have substance use disorder, we are less resilient to withstanding further trauma. So it's like this, this loop that will just repeat and repeat and feed into mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. And so here I was, I had no idea what trauma was. You know, of course, I was only 12. Um, no one had ever spoken to me about my mom's mental health. It was always physical. Everything she told us, no one ever said, that's not your fault. Your mom's sick, nothing. So I just thought, you know, I was awful and that was it. And so I had this little cup of vodka and innocently just, I had no idea what gate that was going to open. And it's just so scary when I think about kids today how some kids can just party in college and do co- do coke and and whatever and they're fine right. or but then another kid who has trauma or mental health issues or whatever and unknowingly doesn't realize the floodgate they're about to open by that one drink by that it's so that's that's such an important distinction i think i'm really glad you mentioned that because it's not like alcohol and drugs have some hidden chemical that will cause your life to fall apart and crumble and absolutely lead to destruction. It's that it's a combination of the childhood trauma, the insecurities, the mental health issues, and then using those substances as a treatment for that. That is when it's just a chemical reaction. Alcohol and drugs are just a coping skill. So I'm really excited to hear about the recovery side of things and how yes. you eventually turned that leaf. But obviously, before we do that, I, I do want to hear a little bit more about uh, how bad things got. So you started, you picked up that first cup of vodka. Right. Fast forward a little bit. How does that lead to some of the pictures um, that we see on your Instagram of how bad things got? <laughs> yeah, those pictures are nice, right? Um, so yeah, so I, I did just that. I set, I did what I set out to do and I drank as much as I could and whenever I could. And a lot of people will ask me like, what, do, what is a 12 year old alcoholic look like? Well, you know, I, I don't believe alcoholism has anything to do with how often you drink. It's about the obsession and the motives. So, you know, I wasn't able to drink every day, all day at 12 years old, but I drank as much as possible. And that progressed into high school. And, um, you know, I dropped out of high school, I think, the first semester of my sophomore year. And I, you know, started hanging out with the kids that did harder drugs and were ditching school and dropping out and all that stuff because I didn't want to just drink on the weekends because I never I've never drank or used to just party. I drank and used to survive myself. And I don't want to survive myself on Saturday and Friday night and Saturday, I want to survive every day, you know? Right. Right. Um, and so I just, um, was a full, I mean, just a full blown alcoholic, but at that age it was like, okay. It was like, you know, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. It's just, you know, being a party girl. And, and, um, I, I definitely sought out love through sex. Um, that's very common also with survivors is that if that's something that, you've been taught is a way to get affection is through giving your body to somebody, then you end up a lot of times repeating that. And I always just felt empty inside. And, um, but it was all I knew. It was the only love that I had ever felt before. Um, and I drank to deal with that. I think I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Right, because it's recreating that same shame, recreating that same Same. trauma. So then you need the same treatment for it. Yeah. More alcohol. 
it, it, it's just such a vicious, vicious cycle. Um, mm-hmm. And so then I, you know, I managed to get an apartment and I, I started doing, I was a hairstylist for just a couple of years and um, drinking like crazy. And then I had to have a wisdom tooth pulled and they prescribed me Vicodin. Mm. And oh man, you know, alcohol is, is just as dangerous as opiates. Um, there is no distinction. The only difference is that alcohol may take longer to kill you and opiates get the job done pretty fast. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the only difference, but they are the exact, I mean, I, I really bothers me when people think al- alcohol is less dangerous because it is not, but, um, yeah, so I, I had every wisdom tooth pulled one at a time for prescription each and just started having unnecessary procedures for the prescriptions and, you know, shopping around at the doctors and visiting ERs and all that stuff. And then I, I ended up homeless. I lost my apartment. I lost my friends. I lost my car. Um, and was just strung out on pills, just an alcohol, just so bad. And I was, staying at this meth dealer's apartment and I was so sick this day on this day I I didn't have any pills and my connect didn't have pills and you know it's very difficult to describe opiate withdrawal unless you've been through it but it's horrific beyond beyond Mm -hmm. and he and the guy said he had someone on the way so I assumed the guy had pills that was coming but he didn't he had heroin and a needle and you know at that point I didn't care about myself at all and I just put my arm out. I didn't even think twice about it being a needle or dangerous or the big H word. Um, I did not care. And so from that day on, I was an IV heroin and meth user for about 15 years. Wow. 15 years. A lot of people will not survive that. It is something that is very difficult for me to wrap my brain around. I do not understand. It makes no medical, logical sense how I'm here today. I mean, I am, I was homeless. I've lived under bridges. I've eaten from garbage cans, um, lived in cars, you know, motel rooms. Um, there was a good year I walked the streets in a full-on drug psychosis talking to myself. I don't even know to this day what was real during that time. Mm-hmm. You know, I had abscesses all over my body, track marks. Um, I had run out of veins and was using my neck. I, you know, was losing my teeth, my hair, everything. I mean, well, you've seen the picture and that it's just, I have lots of pictures like that. It's bad. And I was in and out of jail. Um, and I was raped, of course, because, mm-hmm. you know, it, there's the re-traumatization. I was selling heroin under a bridge alone, you know. And, of course, I was, you know, beat up and robbed and, bra- and raped by two men. And I still never felt like a victim. I thought that that's just what I get. This is what happens Mm -hmm. to someone like me. Mm -hmm. You know, I just never thought that real life was possible for someone like me. I always thought I was different and damaged and dirty and disgusting. And that this is just the way that life is supposed to be for a gross person like me. And how do you finally come to, Mm -hmm. to reach out for help? Or how do you finally, because at any point in that journey, most people would reach out for help or say to themselves, you know what, this is insane. I need, I need to get out of this. But what, what was it for you that was finally uh, hammered that point home? So I was in and out of jail. And so when I'd go to jail, I'd, then I'd see the judge. They, they offered me so many. I had a lots of these outpatients and treatments and lots of uh, meetings. Oh, and you went, to them. you went to them during this 15-year period? Off and on when I was, yeah, off and on when I would go to jail and then I, you know, it takes like two days to see the judge, which means I'm really sick. I'm really Mm -hmm. dope sick by the time I'm in front of that judge. Whatever you want me to do, I will sign if you're going to let me get out. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm desperate. Um, And so, yeah, I was sentenced to lots of stuff that I never completed, but I did have some seeds planted during those little times. And that's why seeds are so important today for me to plant seeds in other people. You do not have to want to be sober for me to care about you. 
I will show I will show kindness to you, even if your future plans at this point are over. Because those seeds matter. Those seeds matter more than trying to shame or convince somebody to do it the way that you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, you know, over the years, I've really, really become way more of an activist for harm reduction because these people are my people now. When I first got into recovery, my thoughts and my behaviors were as soon as you're quote unquote willing because that's what everything told me. Once you're willing to get sober or willing to come to this recovery path, then I will be willing to help you. It's conditional. But what it's conditional it on that. Very, very conditional. And what harm reduction says is we are willing to care for you and help you now. Mm-hmm. These people that use drugs are not any less worthy than, than people that are sober. I was not any less worthy of a person under that bridge than I am sitting in my office on this podcast with you. I just didn't know it. And so what what were some of those seeds? So it was some harm reduction uh, members at a facility. What was it that they said or did that you remember? So actually my first seeds were just the 12 step community. That's where everybody sentences you to. All the, that's the only thing they know is NA or AA meetings from a judge. You get your court card signed. But I would hear and see, because I'm from the streets. I don't see people like that. I, I just see, you know, people doing things like I'm doing. So I would see people and hear little bits of stories of people that were like me, but doing life differently. Mm-hmm. And it just planted seeds a little bit that maybe there was maybe there is a different way to live. I didn't know what that looked like. And I didn't even, I wasn't sure that I was capable of it, but that I, but the fact that I could see that some people were, it it stayed with me. And so when I was sentenced, finally sentenced, I went to state prison and um, I served a little over two years in state prison, but you know, halfway through my sentence, I had a moment that I talk about my book, and it's very hard to describe or explain to you. But a sensation came over me and a tiny spark finally ignited that believe the believe just a little bit that I didn't want to die like that, Mm -hmm. that I was worth just a little bit more than overdosing in some riverbed alone as a transient whose identification was pending. And that is the absolute reality of my addiction. I is shocking to me that that did not happen. Mm-hmm. It absolutely should have happened. I mean, I was, yeah, it, that was not far fetched. And that is my recovery date, May first, two thousand eleven. Wow. I, from from that day on, I never drank or used again. That is all I did. I still had about a year left in prison. So basically, all I did was I made a vow to myself. Because I thought alcohol and drugs were the problem. Right. (laughs) You know, I thought. If I just stop these pesty chemicals. (laughs) Right. That's that's what's putting me in prison. That's what's getting me in these bad situations. That's why my teeth are falling out. That's why I'm like this. So clearly they are the problem. So if I just get rid of those, yeah, I'll be fixed. You know, then I can carry on like all these other people are carrying on in their lives and doing things. When I was 34, I had nothing. I didn't even own a Mm -hmm. pair of pants, nothing. (laughs) Um, So I just basically in prison, I stopped trading because I was smuggling tobacco. I mean, I was such a, the the criminal mentality was intense for me. (laughs) Oh, and crime Um, stop in prison. There's lots of. Oh, yeah. Lots of crimes. So I just stopped trading the tobacco that I was smuggling for pills and, and alcohol. That's all I did. Wow. Um, but that helped because it started clearing the fog. But as the fog started clearing, the pain started coming. Because everything I've ever run from was still there. Mm-hmm. My childhood was still there. And now not only do I have my childhood, but now I have all these other things that I've been through and done and shame and guilt and, and all the stuff as an adult. So now I have an even more ginormous mountain to face. And I got paroled and I 
the only recovery I'd ever known was a 12 step. So I went back to meetings and, you know, that's where I got my foundation in recovery. Um, but although today I would tell you that my recovery has expanded way beyond and around that. And I believe that there's so many paths to recovery and, you know, I just support all of them. But at that time, that's all I knew. That's really all that was super out there. Even then, even only nine years ago, it's, I really feel in the last few years we've become way more um, aware and there's been way more paths brought to the front for people who do not feel good in the 12 step mm-hmm. fellowship, you know, and that's so important. You can't um, see me, but I'm nodding my head right now. Very, you, uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> I don't want to be interrupting you, but I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, okay. uh, it's so unfortunate when people get the message that the 12 step community has a monopoly on recovery and that it's the only way. And yeah. that's just so damaging. So I'm really glad that, um, you've developed that perspective, but I am curious. So that was the foundation. What was that like that, that first, um, 12 step meeting out of prison? You know, I, the, the best thing about the 12 step fellowship is the fellowship. So for me, the best thing, and you'll, and that's my opinion. Um, obviously you're going to have people that say that's absolutely not. And that's the 12 steps. But for me to see people like me, to see people and hear people and have people hug me when I felt so gross, you know, um, it, it, that kindness meant so much to me. Now that kindness came with a pre- prerequisite that I do things the way they wanted. And I was taught that. And I also did that to other people. And that's mm-hmm. something I, I'm not proud of, you know, in early recovery, I was very much, I, I did what I was taught today. I say, fuck what you were taught, love people, just love people. Um, but at that time I didn't know any different. I just knew that I wanted I didn't want to go back to prison anymore. And I thought this is the only way, you know, so I did what I was told and things got better, but on the outside, but my insides were just growing more and more horrible. And I became suicidal at about two years in recovery. Which is actually common, which is to me that that happens so often, but what was going on in your head? What led to that? The problem was now in hindsight, now that I have so much healing work under my belt, the problem was I had, I had caged myself in a 12 step box and I was told that that was the answer to all of my issues. And so if I wasn't working, I wasn't working it hard enough. Um, And that's a lie Mm -hmm. because the 12 steps are wonderful if you love the 12 steps, but they are created and designed for one purpose. The 12 steps are not created and designed to heal trauma. They are not designed to deal with sexual abuse or anxiety or depression or mental health issues or anything. Those things are held in your body and your brain. Mm -hmm. This is not, you cannot 12 step your way out of childhood trauma. You cannot, it's, you can write, you can write as many resentments as you like towards those abusers, as many resentment inventories as you like, but yeah, at the end of the day, I agree with you. I think there's a deeper layer there that you can do with trauma therapy and with other methods that isn't, isn't there in, in as amazing as the, as the big book is like, it's only hundred pages, right? Like they can't, uh, they can't do it all. And the thing is, is that that's not even saying anything bad about traditional recovery. All it's saying is that it's wonderful for what it's designed for, but let's honor and celebrate and encourage people to also realize that there's much more to heal from. And you can add stuff in, you know, if you don't want to leave that traditional recovery path that you're on, you don't have to, you can add stuff in. So I two years, I was becoming suicidal. I just, I was having so much effects on my body because trauma is held in the body. I was tortured. And I thought if this is, this is as good as it gets, I'd rather die. You know, I just, I couldn't. And I was working it hard and every, you know, I was working an honest program and all these junk slogans that people throw at people which are can be so harmful 
to somebody who needs other help. Um, so give, give me an example of a junk slogan, just to be controversial here. It works if you work it. Okay. Yeah. That's junk. Because it works for what it's, wor- what it's designed for, but it doesn't for what it's not. So when someone is suffering with depression or anxiety or, you know, trauma or, you know, whatever it is, and you're telling them, well, it works if you work it. Well, no, that is, that is, that's a junk slogan. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's tons and that's not even something in literature. That's just people. No, no. The people just started saying those stuff. They started giving out chips and different things. But um... people sometimes just, you know, they don't realize what they do. They know not what they do. Um, but there's a lot of junk stuff. I personally don't call myself an addict anymore either, but that's mm-hmm. just my, mm-hmm. my personal belief. I personally am a person, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't have to call myself that or cage myself in that way to know that I can never fuck with another substance again. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I am recovered from my drug addiction, but I will always be in recovery and healing from the reasons of why I went to that addiction in the first place. You're speaking my language right now. I think that <laughs> that debate drives me fucking nuts. Oh, the whole I'm an addict. No, I'm not an addict. I'm a recovering addict. It's like, I think the way that I look at it, and, and you could disagree with me, is that the terminology of saying I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict, and everybody in a circle saying it, is just a, a way of creating a sense of unity and creating yeah. a sense of group identity. And for that reason, it's very good. Yeah. Um, but aside from that, it means absolute, absolutely nothing. You know That's what? just my opinion. No, yeah. I agree. I totally agree. And I think that for some people, if a label is empowering to that person, then I support it. But I think we should always ask first because to other people, those labels become cages. And so mm-hmm. it is okay to ditch the label that is not that is not in denial of where you come from. It's not in denial of how if I were to say, okay, I'm going to use heroin again, like a normal person, like anybody. I don't even know if anybody does use heroin like a normal person. But, <laughs> or I could drink alcohol because, right. you know, that would be a devastating choice for me because like I said I I am recovered from the drug aspect of my addiction however I am always going to be healing from trauma so that trauma is always there so that makes me like I said in the beginning much more susceptible to then again develop an addiction again so Could, could you share could you share a little bit more about healing from trauma because you mentioned how trauma resides in the body and it yeah. resides in the brain what was it that you did? What what has really helped you get through that? So I have two, like, what's your podcast called again? The Addictive Pod. I love it. Okay. So <laughs> I have two moments of like uh, awakening, right? So I have the moment in prison that changed my life as far as my addiction, the path of my addiction. And I have a moment at two years in recovery that absolutely changed my life in recovery. And that moment is that I finally, I gave it one more chance and I became an advocate for my own health and decided that I am going to look into these other things. And I entered it into Google. I remember, I remember the day I had never spoken about my sexual abuse other than some step work, you know, but I had never not with a therapist, not somebody who's trauma trained and no, no sponsor is trauma trained. (laughs) Um, you know, um, so I, I Googled, you know, sexual abuse. I Googled, um, religious stuff. I Google, I just started Googling stuff and I thought I was the only, I mean, I still had this feeling that I was so separate from everyone. And what I found is that I was not alone. I found that these are terms, mother wound and religious trauma and religious abuse and, you know, shame. I learned, the, I finally learned what, what really what shame meant, you know, shame was not feeling guilty about something I did. Shame was feeling that I was bad. And I went to a therapist and I did it quietly because, um, you know, I just, I didn't feel very supported in that, even though it's fine to go to therapists, what, no matter what recovery path you're in. I just felt like I was getting more of the messages that I just wasn't working what I should be working. Right. And I had a therapist tell me for the first time, 
that what I was feeling made sense. Of course I feel this way. And it just, I remember breaking down because someone finally told me that I wasn't broken, that I wasn't crazy, that everything I felt made total sense for everything that I had been through. Everything I'd been through, everything I'd done to myself, because I've abused myself way longer than anyone else did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did EMDR therapy, which is another- Amazing. Amazing. He, I've done that as well. I highly re- Yeah, that's awesome. EMDR is incredible, incredible, incredible. I also- For people who've never heard of that, could you explain it a little bit? Oh, God. Uh, right? Every time that someone asks that, eye movement- Sorry. Eye movement. <laughs> eye movement something something basically something as well i can't i can't I can save you here i forget <laughs> and re refocus or re i don't know I, you know what now that you've asked everyone asked me this i need to write this down and keep it on my hand at, like every time i do a podcast but it's basically you have to do it with a therapist a lot of the healing work i do i can do on my own or in a community online community or through books and workbooks and and workshops, but this is something that you need to do with the therapist. With a trauma, please make sure if you do have trauma or suspect you have trauma that you go to a trauma-trained, trauma-informed therapist. Amazingly, not all therapists are trauma-trained, um, but that is very important because that is the difference between diagnosing you with something versus realizing you are wounded. That is the difference between a trauma-trained therapist and regular therapy is that therapy tends to or therapists psychiatrists psychologists they tend to diagnose trauma trained and informed tend to see your wounds as why these things are happening over a disorder for anybody anybody that's listening to this who's curious google emdr neither of us are experts and we can't even remember the acronym anyways it is (laughs) please it really is so many people come across in recovery, whether they continue to do 12 step work or don't, um, the people that have found EMDR and who have used that to process some of those traumatic moments in their lives, um, they, they swear by it. They, they all swear by it. And so I'm really glad that you came across that. Has there been anything else? Um, so after you started working with a therapist, after you said that you're developing more and more yeah, always. Uh, recovery areas. So what are some of those other areas? So I, I mean, I do, oh, I just, it blew up for me once I started doing EMDR because it one gave me, I gave myself permission to seek whatever I needed, which was an act of self-love. It was the first, you know, not maybe not the first, I guess getting sober was, but it was the first real conscious act where I was like, I'm going to go against the grain here and I'm going to love myself a little bit, which was huge for me. And again, that goes back to my harm reduction belief, because even someone who decides to go and get clean needles or a safe injection site is a bigger act of self-love than people realize. And it is huge for their future. That's enough of my spiel on that. But yeah, so I started um that opened the door for me it just opened the floodgates for me her language that you know my therapist language and the terms she used I would go home and google I go on inner on the internet on Facebook and I would find these communities and I realized that I'm just not alone and so I do EMDR and I still do EMDR I haven't done it in a couple years but I may actually do it again um I do microcurrent neurotherapy, which is actually has nothing to do with the user. Like I don't participate at all, but there's um, like electrodes put on your brain and it helps like re recalibrate some of the, you know, little lines in your brain. Again, I don't know shit, Um, Mm -hmm. but it helps so much with anxiety. It Mm -hmm. helps so much with anxiety and depression and stuff like that. Um, I do inner child work and inner child healing. Um, I do inner child meditation where I take a picture of myself as a little girl and I actually hold it in my hand and I look at her and then I meditate on it and envision myself going over into the corner and picking her up off the floor and telling her that she is love and light and perfect and that none of that is her fault. And I just hold her and hug her like she always should have been. And I do that every morning, actually. And I'm, it's like wow. reparenting myself. 
So I'm actually being re-raised from the heart of the mother that I am today. That's beautiful, Jen. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's been a journey. And I just, um, this healing deal is incredible. And and healing is really hard. And, it, and you're going to want to quit and all that stuff. But I just, I feel so excited for the future like it just it's never ending and that's why I say that I'll be in recovery for the rest of my life from all the reasons that I went to drugs as a coping skill in the first place but that's not like a it's not like a cage it's like an exciting statement because I don't even want to be the same woman next year that I am today I just want to keep growing and keep learning and my truth is always changing and shifting and transforming and that's like what we're here for i think (laughs) that reminds me of something an aa speaker earl hightower used to say which is how free do you want to be yeah and that always resonated with me like where he would talk about it's like we're going to an ocean with a little thimble you know and we're just filling up that thimble and do we want to bring a bucket next time do we want to bring a whole tub what are we going to do with this ocean that we've discovered um and I'm curious, what's what's coming up for you? So you've written this I book, book, Shape of yeah, a Woman. I've written a book. And, and what, what's coming for you in the future? So I have, I have more books planned. Um, and I've started writing a little bit. And I, you know, I'm not sure yet. I have a lot of people ask me like, oh, are you, are you a coach? And I never thought about coaching. Like a life coach makes me want to, that word seems so wrong <laughs> to me. <laughs> But, but as I looked into it, I just recently looked into it and I realized that I would never be a life coach. However, I may be like an emotional healing somebody or, you know, a childhood, something to do, you know, I'm not a life coach. That's not me, but so I don't, I don't know yet. You know, I'm writing, I love writing. I have some stuff going up in some magazines, some online magazines, um, you know, I have, I just launched my website. I don't know if you call it a website or a blog, but it has all my podcasts, all the press articles that have been done on me and my story. Um, I don't know. I just, you know, obviously my kids are little, so it gives me, Mm -hmm. my writing time is limited. Um, but you know, I know that's not going to be forever. So who knows, who knows what I'm going to do? (laughs) What's amazing. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited too. Yeah. It's, it's, man, this life is so great. I just, it, it, it just, I try not to let it bug me, but to think of how many years I just spent Mm -hmm. abusing myself and in the dark, it just, it's like I'm a newbie out here. I still feel like a baby. Like I just, you know, I feel just so excited and like, there's just so much opportunity. And sometimes I get ahead of myself and I think I don't have much time left. I'm going to got to do it all right now. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I just, the thing with me is that I want everyone to know that no one is too, too far down the tubes for recovery and healing mm-hmm. to reach. And, and that, you know, um, sobriety is not superiority. And um, it just happens to be the method that works for me. But any act that someone does to take better care of themselves than they did before, in my opinion, I honor as recovery. Well, Jen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's really been a pleasure. And um, everybody that's listening, check out the link in the description, check out her website, the book shape of a woman it's on Amazon. And stay tuned for everything else that this incredible person has to (laughs) offer. Jen, you've been awesome. Thank you so much for having me.